Yes, my name is Bond. James Bond. Welcome to Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series. I hope we're going to have some gratuitous sex and violence. I certainly hope so, too. Celebrating the 50th anniversary of Bond in films, Arnie, Stuart, and Brock will be watching and reviewing every James Bond film, ending with this year's newest Bond film, Skyfall. Do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die. Be warned. Now playing has a license to spoil and use mild adult language. The Americans are going to be none too pleased about this. Listener discretion is advised. What, no small talk? No chit-chat? Today we're talking about Die Another Day, starring Pierce Brosnan, Halle Berry, Toby Stevens, Rick Yoon, Rosamund Pike, Judy Dench, John Cleese, and directed by Lee Tamahori. This is Brock, James Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in LA. This is Arnie. Do we have to do this right now? I mean, Skyfall is out. We've been doing James Bond a couple of times a week for most of November. Can't we podcast another day? <laughs> Arnie, Stewart, do you recommend Die Another Day? Oh, no, I want to be here, guys. I'm getting excited. We're now entering ones that I actually know. I saw Die Another Day in theaters with my mother when it came out. It was the first time since The View to a Kill that I had done such a thing. And yeah, I know these movies. I know Casino Royale, Quantum, Skyfall. These are the ones I'm excited to talk about. These are the ones that I've wanted to return to because I have some connection here. Die Another Day, it's a funny one for me because when I saw it back in 2002, I wasn't identifying as a Bond fan at that time. I went in, I saw it, I'm like, oh, that's what it's like to do a Bond movie these days. Well, that was kind of fun. Lo and behold, now that I look at the forums, now that I see where people have positioned this movie, this is one of the most hated Bonds. I had no clue until we started doing this retrospective and people started trashing this movie that this was considered one of the very worst. You should have asked me. I would have told you. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is a big deal too, Stuart, because it was the 40th anniversary of Bond when it was released and the 20th Bond movie. And they really made a big deal about this in 2002. They really put the whole promotional push behind it. And of course, in the movie, you clearly saw all the homages all throughout the movie. And it was kind of a nice little love letter to Bond fans, or so they thought when they were making the movie. A lot of Bond fans did not hold that sentiment when they walked out of the theater afterwards. You're right. It is filled with signature moments and gadgets. For someone that was coming in cold, having not seen Bond in decades, that was fun. But now that we've followed this whole series, I might have a different perspective now that we're getting to it in context of the Brosnan years. Well, you guys have me scared. Maybe I'm not going to die another day. I think I might die today after this review. But... I did see this in theaters. I remember it coming out. I remembered nothing about it. So when I pushed play on the DVD for this one, all I knew was a villain with diamonds in his face and Halle Berry was going to get her own spinoff as Jinx. That was all the talk at the time. Jinx, Jinx, Jinx. Jinx is the new Bond. Jinx will get her own new series. So I kind of just braced myself to expect another one kind of like Tomorrow Never Dies where Pierce Brosnan has to stand in the background while Halle Berry gets all the action. But 
I went in pretty much tabula rasa. When I saw it in the theater two opening weekend, I was very excited about it, and I was very happy. They put Halle Berry in it, actually. At the time, I thought that was a really good choice, and what a great idea. And all that talk of her spinoff, Arnie, I remember that being one of the first times that it kind of felt like they were putting it out there as a feeler to see if the fans would like it, and then if the movie did well. Kind of like how they announced sequels like two weeks before the movie's released nowadays. That's how I always think of where it started for me, was with this Jinx spinoff. It was the talk, 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 and it never materialized. Materialized. Well, this was also the shit phase of Halle Berry's career. We're just 18 short months away from Catwoman. She'd just taken off her top from Swordfish. She was given a minimal role in X-Men. What are you talking about? She had just won the Oscar. She was at the pinnacle of her career. She won an Oscar and she said, I'm going to be a Bond girl. During the filming of this movie, she was nominated for the Oscar and then she got the Oscar and came back to work the next day. This is the follow-up to her Oscar. Yeah, that's exactly it. She's co-starring in this movie. This is Die Another Day starring Pierce Brosnan and Halle Berry. But we discussed in Catwoman, I mean, other than Monster's Ball, in her oeuvre from this time, are you going to champion what, Gothica? No, but Monster's Ball is what got her the Oscar. Yes, I said other than that. This was a major deal at the time. Her acceptance speech, the dress she wore, it was a sensation. She was at the pinnacle of people discussing her career. Whether or not she's had an illustrious career before or after this movie, a conversation for another day. But this was a big get for Bond. And it's the thing I remember about Die Another Day, the fact that it's the one with Halle Berry. But like you said, Brock, she was nominated while filming, right? So they didn't know all of this when cast. She did Dorothy Dandridge and Bullworth. And those are the two movies that the producers and Brosnan were citing for why they were excited to have her in this movie. Because she had done X-Men before this, but she didn't have, you know, as flashy a role as she did in the other two. And that's why they cast her is because they liked her work in those movies. Compared to Terry Hatcher and Denise Richards, yeah, she is a big get. But also going on at this moment, it should be pointed out, Triple X, Vin Diesel, was also coming out this year, and he was proclaiming loudly that this was your dad's series, your grandfather's series. It was dead. The new spies would be hipper. They would wear fur-lined coats. They would do outrageous stunts. They even kill a James Bond figure at the beginning of Triple X. Bond has to compete with a new generation here, and I definitely feel like the pressure is on in this movie to go for the next generation. Much in the way that A View to a Kill was going after us, I feel like Die Another Day is trying to grab millennials. You're absolutely right. And since the last one came out, The Matrix had been out. And Lord of the Rings had come out and had all that CGI stuff going on. And so Bond felt the pressure there. And the producers completely admitted that they felt the pressure, the need to up the ante. And the only way they thought they could is instead of doing practical stunts throughout, they would use more CGI. And also don't forget, Stuart, earlier this summer, out of nowhere, was the first Bourne movie. Bourne surprised everyone the summer before this came out as a spy movie to be reckoned with. Yeah, I think his influence will be felt next time, for sure. Right, exactly. And you mentioned CGI, yeah. I kept thinking about another movie we've recently reviewed that came out the same year, Spider-Man. I'm like, oh, it's Spider-Bond during some of these really piss-poor CGI scenes. So yeah, Bond is 40 years old. He's having a midlife crisis. What's he going to do? Arnie, give him the plot. How are they going to spruce him up? Can I sing it with electronica? You can. (laughs) The movie opens with Bond undercover in North Korea to kill Colonel Moon, who is smuggling African conflict diamonds. 
but Bond's cover is blown by inside information, and while Bond succeeds in driving Moon off a cliff and exploding diamonds in the face of Moon's henchman Zhao, Bond is captured and tortured during the coolest and most disturbing credit sequence in the Bond franchise. But when Bond thinks he's going to be shot by a firing squad run by Moon's father, General Moon, Bond is actually released, being traded to the British in exchange for Zhao, who had been captured. M reveals that Bond is assumed to have broken and given up information due to leaked information, and that his double-O status is revoked as he didn't take the cyanide given to every double-O. But Bond breaks free and begins to investigate who double-crossed him. He heads to Cuba, where Zhao is undergoing radical gene therapy to change his looks, where he meets Jinx Johnson, an NSA agent also investigating Zhao. Diamonds in Zhao's possession leads Bond to British billionaire insomniac Gustav Graves, who has just launched Project Icarus, a satellite that can reflect the sun to the earth presumably for some benevolent purpose, but Icarus is in fact a laser weapon that can recreate the heat and destructive power of the sun. Gustav is actually Colonel Moon, alive and disguised as the British man by the Cuban gene therapy that seems to also change your accent and he plans to use the weapon to push North Korea to global dominance and show up his father. But Gustav is already being watched by an MI6 agent, Miranda Frost, who poses as Graves' fencing instructor. Frost and Bond team up, and Bond is brought back into the MI6 fold and loaded up with Q weaponry, but Frost was the double agent, having teamed with Gustav Moon. Bond is captured, but he and Jinx eventually escape. Gustav Moon fires Icarus at the U.S. base in South Korea, but in the nick of time, Jinx and Bond are able to kill both Miranda and Gustav, stopping the laser, and then heating up with each other as credits roll. Are you calling him Gustav Moon on purpose because he's both people? Yes, in a summary, it is very difficult to explain that an Asian man turned into a British man and get it across. <laughs> This is the first gun barrel sequence I can remember where the bullet comes out at the audience, right? Like, he shoots him in the barrel? Yeah, it's right there, and it's really odd considering what I always consider the gun barrel sequence to be. But also, it's CGI, Stuart, and if this is the CGI Bond, well, sure, you might see the bullet, right? Imagine if we had this 3D composed conversion of this movie right now. The bullet's coming at me, man! Yeah, it's hard not to notice that bullet's coming right at you. It's ostentatious, but it does set the tone for this movie. I gotta say, I remembered really loving this opener. I still really love this opener in North Korea when Bond comes in with the surfing dudes and infiltrates this weapons exchange. Yeah, I think it really works. It's really great. And I think this might be the first time in a movie where someone can say, hey, there's an app for that. And this one is the, hey, I can find a British spy app on my phone. It was really kind of fun to watch this whole scene go down. I think it works from start to finish. It's clever. It's smart. It's fun. It's full of action and good performances. And I really, really liked this opening scene. The humor's good, for one thing. I love the fact that I'm laughing again. We introduced a Colonel Moon, and he's kickboxing a bag, and it turns out to contain his anger management therapist. He's saying, teach you to lecture me. I mean, I'm laughing. I think that's a good joke. I'm enjoying this character. Right away, it tells me, I'm going to like this villain. I'm going to like being here. I'm enjoying it, but I'm not sure if he's the main villain because this is the opening sequence. And it turns out that they're just following this new formula with Brosnan. And I guess they did this with Dalton before him, setting up the movie's big bad in the opening scene versus just having action for action's sake. But I'm not quite sure how I felt about either of these villains. I wasn't sure what role they'd play. And when he kills Colonel Moon, I assumed Colonel Moon was dead. Again, I remembered very little about having seen this movie a decade ago. So unlike the last movie where there was absolutely no question who the bad guy was going to be, 
Here, I thought Moon was dead. I knew Zhao was still out there, but I did wonder who Zhao was working for. This is the first time we've had an Asian actor, anyway, be the Bond villain. I mean, Dr. No doesn't really count. It was a white guy with some makeup effects on it here. But I think that might have been part of the surprise, too, is normally these villains end up being old white guys with crazy plans here. So does he. Well, it's true, <laughs> true. I guess I'm going to have to eat my words later into the plot. But at this point, I assumed he was the bad guy. Or rather, I think I thought Zhao was the bad guy. And it was kind of felt fresh that we actually have an ethnic actor correctly playing a North Korean. This was a hot spot in the world. I've been impressed that the Brosnan movies really have tried to look at the real villains of the post-Cold War world and the crumbling Russia. We had the emergence of China, the battle over oil, and now North Korea. I think this is a great target, great fun. Love all the hovercraft stuff over the landmines. Great opener. Yeah, the only thing I have a problem with in this opener is the surfing. It's wonderful surfing by Laird Hamilton, but I don't believe for a second Pierce Brosnan did any of that surfing at all. And as soon as he pulls off that suit and you see Pierce Brosnan, you know it wasn't him in the surfing. And there's not even a pretending that it was. It was kind of reminding me of the first time in this Brosnan era of the Roger Moore stuff they would pull. And that bothers me every time I watch that scene. But I soon forget it because as soon as Brosnan's in on the plot and everything going, I love the rest of the scene. And then after Bond defeats Moon, we get something that we've never seen in a James Bond movie to date. James Bond being tortured, and then they also use the opening title sequence as telling a plot while he's captured for 14 months. We've never seen it, the opening song sequence, tied into the movie before. Yeah, it's a head-scratcher. It's surprising. And you know what? I like it. It's a neat idea that if they can make it work to tie it in here. It's a little disconcerting that we have scorpions and naked women on fire dancing around, but I kind of groove onto it because I don't know what to expect. They've given us a scenario I've never seen before. Bond broke his collarbone last time, but was largely okay. Here, this guy's getting waterboarded. He's getting really pummeled for 18 months. This is a shocker all different kinds of ways. Brock, when they made this, was waterboarding in the public consciousness? Because all I could think about was Guantanamo Bay and treatment of prisoners of war, all hot button topics in late 2002. And as we went on, it got even bigger. This seems a little premature, though. Is it just coincidence? The public consciousness about what's going on in Guantanamo Bay was not there yet, no. So it is a coincidence that they're doing it here, but perhaps the producers and the writers looked into what kind of torture was going on, and they used it for the movie. Again, I was thinking about these post-9-11 things, and as such, I found them very moving. But the way everything was switching to fire and ice, and in retrospect, it made a lot of sense in the context of the film with Icarus and things. Of course, I knew none of this when I'm watching it at the beginning. I think this is, I said it in the plot summary, the best credit sequence ever because it breaks from tradition. Not that I have anything wrong with naked women, even in silhouette dancing on my screen, but this just takes it to the next level in a very serious and cool way that actually improves on multiple watchings. I love this. I think it's very much in the James Bond opening title sequence vein, but you're right. They derivate a lot from it to great success, but they still have the girls and they have the imagery and they flash back to Brosnan in the plot. So I think they've improved it. 
I always like it when they take something and they improve it. If they just change it for changing its sake, what's the point? Here, they really found a way to improve on this because they really wanted to make sure the tone was there. They wanted to make sure we knew Bond was tortured. They didn't hide that from us at all. And it was short of him bleeding for us. The biggest point of the movie is that this is a different James Bond movie, folks. And whether or not they live up to this promise as we go along is what we're going to talk about today. It's a strange one because, yes, tradition tells us we should be ogling this and what we're seeing is something much more shocking and, yes, prescient in the moment, something that we all feel uncomfortable about. So it makes it even more surreal being set to a Madonna dance song. This is Madonna? I thought this was Kesha. I mean, my God, this was terrible. I didn't think Madonna could get worse than Justify My Love. She proved me wrong. I loved Madonna in the 80s and the very early 90s, but she got worse. If I was taking poppers at a gay dance club, maybe this would be fine as some background thump, but as a Bond song, or as anything I'd ever choose to listen to, it sucks on both levels. I completely disagree on everything that you just said. I think this song is good. I like it quite a bit. Here's the thing. Madonna is much like Bond. Using her in this way is a stroke of genius because they both have a long career of exploiting sex and trashiness. They're terrible at comedy. But Madonna is doing what she always does here. She is jumping on a trend. In 2002, the biggest thing in electronic music is Electro Clash. And I like Electro Clash. It didn't really catch on. It didn't have a lot of pop hits. But Fisher Spooners Emerge, Ladytron 17, these were great songs at the time, and she nailed the formula here. I understand that this is not a good song, meaning it is not in the traditional Shirley Bassey mode. She's not singing a ballad. She's not doing what they normally do. It's an excellent groove. I think that the electronic kind of all that stuff, I think it's a cool song. I like the groove to it too, Stuart. I don't like the song. I think Arnie hit it on the head. Just Find My Love, she lost me there. Although in the late 90s, Arnie, in early 2000s, she kind of got me back a little bit. But I digress. It's not the Madonna retrospective. <laughs> I think that this song is disjointed for a James Bond movie. The groove is awesome. Yeah. It's a weird marriage of song and image. And I'm not sure what song would go well with seeing Pierce Brosnan's head shoved underwater. I mean, I'm not sure what could go there. But wow, <laughs> She's kind of framed this song like a spy adventure. There's gunshots going off. She's being beaten up and gasping. At one point, she gives a shout out to Sigmund Freud. I don't know what the hell she's doing. Alarms are going off, but it kind of sets a mood. It goes well enough with image. I like the group. I think that this song works. I know people dog on it. I like later Madonna better than earlier Madonna. I would much rather listen to this than like a virgin. Her shout out to Sigmund Freud was Sigmund Freud gives good face. What did she say? I didn't catch the... Uh... She says Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud, I believe. She repeats herself quite a bit. I think I like the Bond ones that think outside the box. Yeah, I like it when they do something different too, but I'd prefer it to be an improvement, not just different for different sake. And right after this song, whether you like it or not, then we get right back into Korea. I just love this scene when he has to cross the bridge with a prisoner transfer when he thinks he's going to get shot by a firing squad. I think it's great. I really do, too. I think this really works. The idea of picking up 14 months later allows enough time to have passed that they can do what they're going to do with the villain, and Bond can really have suffered. He looks like it here. I mean, sure, it's just a beard and long hair and all that, but he's really selling on me that he hasn't broken, that MI6 thinks that he has, but he hasn't. I think that is a great dynamic to pick up when he is given the exchange and Zhao for 007. 
And what I'm realizing with this is this right here, I believe, is the hardest to watch James Bond film we've seen thus far. Now, I don't remember a whole lot about Casino Royale, but one thing I do remember, we'll be talking about this next time, is a torture scene. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, here is the seeds of Casino Royale in these early scenes with Pierce Brosnan getting the living crap beat out of him and thinking he's going to die for real and thinking he has no escape. To me, this is the inkling of what is to come that I hear nothing but raves about the next one. And I wonder if you guys say people shit on this movie, maybe after Casino Royale, this needs a reevaluation because I'm loving it. I'm loving New Bond. No one I know shits on the first half of this movie. Nobody. This first half of this movie is some of the great Bond that we're all looking for. They step it up a notch. They give us the intensity they're promising us and some great stuff like you're talking about. As far as an inkling goes, I didn't read Casino Royale, the book for Books and Nachos. I know Stuart did. I think that torture scene that's in the movie of Casino Royale is actually in that book. Stuart, correct me if I'm wrong. So they put it in here. I don't know if they actually were doing it on purpose to call back to Fleming. I think they were doing it to tell the story they wanted to tell Arnie. So as far as an inkling towards where they're going to go, they had no inkling at all to go where they went with Casino Royale in 2002 when this movie was made. Not one inkling at all. The tone becomes more and more radical as they go on. They move away from grit, and we quickly move into Roger Moore territory. This is the first time they've given Pierce Brosnan a Roger Moore adventure. Oh no, I was thinking Dalton. I was going back to License to Kill with his adventure here. His double O status is rescinded. He goes rogue. What more are you seeing? Everything else after you said that, yes. Going to Cuba and meeting Jinx. We'll start there. Koreans into British people. Diamond-powered satellites from Diamonds Are Forever. There is a lot of craziness here. An invisible car. I mean, it doesn't end, Arnie. Dalton never drove an invisible car. This is a Roger Moore movie. This is a view to a kill. This is Moonraker. This is big, bad, crazy, clowny, silly, for the millennials, James Bond. I, I'm going to disagree. I think that this is Bond doing what Bond has always done, which is being 10 years ahead of its time. The Invisible Car, when they brought that up, I'm like, oh my God, that is actually real technology. That was all the internet rage in the early 2000s because somebody developed a cloak that everybody was calling like the invisibility cloak from Harry Potter because it did have cameras all down one side, screens all down the other, and it produced that predator-like effect. So they were taking a real scientific development and using it here in this way. It even had the predator shimmer to it. I saw a lot of this as just being 21st century Bond. I never hearkened back to Moonraker. Now, the satellite thing, we've seen an evil satellite before, right? Diamond-powered even, yes. Yes, that was my memory as well. That, it was like a bit of a callback. We'll talk about the satellite in great detail. But as far as the Q gadgetry goes, it was the first invisible car. I don't know why an invisible car needs windows, but it wasn't that far-fetched. It was not Moonraker territory with laser guns. Actually, I believe that we just had a satellite movie in GoldenEye, right? GoldenEye satellite weapon just a couple of movies ago. It wasn't a laser, but it was, certainly was a satellite weapon. And this technology was indeed developed for tanks. Arnie's right about that. But... You know, there's one thing about an invisible car is that it doesn't turn it into a stealth car. So if you have an invisible car following people behind, I don't care if you believe or not believe you can have an invisible car. It's not quiet. Maybe it's also electric. 
<laughs> it's not! It's, it's Aston Martin! The electric Aston Martin. Q put in the engine. You can't hear an electric car any more than you can see an invisible car. I'm telling you, it's an electric invisible car. I disagree with you also, Arnie. I think that there are a lot of Bondian kind of things here, but where this movie is going here in this part of the movie and where it goes later, it's like we talked about before how the movies are disjointed in two different places. This one is all over the place. And I enjoy the Q scene, but after that, everything after it is like a steep descent of Crazy Town. I ultimately did not recommend a review to a kill or Moonraker, but I don't totally spit on the idea of going big like that. I think it can be fun. And more to the point, I think Brosnan's movies, even Goldeneye, have been fun deficient. They've been so serious and locked up with these real world problems that we never got a whole lot of crazy. The only fun thing in Goldeneye was on the top. And Tomorrow Never Dies and World Is Not Enough, they were much too dour to be fun. They tried to make up with that in the dialogue, but they didn't have crazy gadgets. They didn't have these big elaborate plots the way that this did. And I'm anxious to see if this can work. Brosnan hasn't totally worked for me in Dalton Connery mode, so maybe he can be Roger Moore. Maybe he can do that here. I'm totally embracing the concept of it. And I'm not thinking about Moore at all. I will say that I watched this movie about two days after I watched The World Is Not Enough. And a lot of the sci-fi did kind of cause a little bit of whiplash because of the proximity in my mind to the last one. I'm like, invisible car... Gene therapy, yeah. But when I started thinking about real-world tech and just putting it on a slightly futuristic bent like Bond has always had with cars that shoot lasers, I'm going with this as Bond's world. I'm not thinking about more. And because of how beaten Brosnan is and because he is cut off from MI6, I'm living in Dalton territory, just a 21st century Dalton, and loving every minute of it, and loving to go to Cuba. You talk about travelogue in some of these previous podcasts, I felt like Brosnan had really gotten away from that. And here, I felt we were back at it, really getting a feel for the place, and getting a nice chance to look around Cuba. And remember, this is back pre-Obama, when you couldn't go there. Yeah, and we talked about this a little bit last time where the exotic locations weren't typical exotic locations. Well, they redefined what exotic was because they had been to a lot of exotic locations. In the last movie, they did that on purpose. Here, going to Cuba, you know, it's kind of a good idea to do that. I don't think they actually set foot in Cuba, but I could be wrong about that, Arnie. Did you know that they set foot in Cuba? Because I don't think they did. And more to the point, the British could always go to Cuba. It's just us Americans that were denied it. I don't see this as this radical, fresh thing that you did. But I will agree with this. The places that they're choosing to go don't feel dingy and dark the way that they have in the last movies. This one feels like places you'd actually want to spend time in. Vacation spots, if you were. Well, they said Cuba and Goldeneye. It never felt like Cuba the way this did with the buildings and the structures. They went to an island off of Cuba. Here, he's in, like, Havana. Yeah, but he's actually not. It's a great set dressing and all that kind of They didn't actually go to Cuba, Arnie. I understand this. I'm just saying they also didn't take Sean Connery to a lot of the places we enjoyed seeing. It's well done. And for the record, they didn't go to North Korea either. But... <laughs> 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 but yeah, it's wonderfully done, the Cuban sequences. I actually like the old man. I like the thick accent he had. I like that I had trouble understanding him a little bit. It really felt authentic to me that they really sold Cuba to me in these scenes. If that's what you're saying, Arnie, I agree with you there. 
Did sell you on the woman that he meets there and offers a mojito. First of all, I'm just upset he's drinking a mojito and not a martini. I'm telling you, I was drinking mojitos in 2002. This movie is a time capsule of 2002. I was drinking mojitos in 2002. Absolutely. I was into apple teenies. What can I say? (laughs) And I always drink mojitos when I'm watching women come out of the surf in orange bikinis. Every time. What a nice throwback to Dr. No that was. I couldn't believe it. And I didn't realize it when I first saw this movie a decade ago. But yeah, now I'm taken right back and thinking, I can't believe they found somebody hotter than Ursula Andress. But they did. Halle Berry. Complete with the knife, which is really kind of a nice touch. Unfortunately, she doesn't give a performance much better than Ursula Andress either. It's really a shocker of this one. I remember thinking Halle Berry was fun the first time I watched this. Here, maybe it's just the fact that we've seen a lot of Halle lately. Here with X-Men and with Catwoman. I'm starting to have my opinion change of her. I just realized that maybe it's just that she's cute and that's carried her for a lot of the things here. Because as a Bond girl, I don't feel like she's got a lot more than what Terry Hatcher and... Okay, she's better than Denise Richards. You still leaving Denise Richards on that hook, huh? She's the worst. Stuart, I hear in these first scenes, I like her very much. I think she's doing well. I like the gene therapy scene when she's there. I like her line readings. I like her as an action star in those scenes very much. I think Halle Berry's a very sexy woman. I don't think she has any sexual charisma with Brosnan. It's something I'm bumping up with him again and again. He just doesn't seem to like the women that they pair him with. Michelle Yao and Richards and Hatcher. Like, I feel like maybe that's part of the reason why I'm not liking his Bond as much as the other ones is because he's not bringing that macho sex appeal. The whole flirtation with Halle Berry, I think, is awkward. You mentioned bumping up. I think this is the first time we see James Bond have an orgasm on screen, isn't it? It's the first time we had that kind of sex scene in a James Bond movie. They amped it up. Of course they did. And that's a sign of the times. It's also because he's been in Korea for 18 months. This is supposed to be the first sex he's gotten. And that's why they dwell on it. But as for Hallie and chemistry, I kind of feel bad for Pierce Brosnan because you mentioned four women two of whom were trying to steal the franchise away from him, and the other two were some of the worst actresses we've seen in the franchise. Exactly. They all have their own agenda, and they just aren't satisfied with being the girl that gets the bed in. The one in Goldeneye, I think, had great chemistry with him, and I think Sophie Marceau had great chemistry with him, but the majority of them, I agree with you, you don't believe it. There's something going on. But when it works with him, it does work. I think the dialogue that he's saddled with, with the Halle Berry flirting scene, it's a little obvious, and the way she plays it is a little obvious, too, and it gets worse in the palace later with the way she does her dialogue on these kind of funny tomorrow never dies kind of lines but there is a worse bond girl than barry they decide in cuba that the next stop for finding zhao i guess that's why they're here i'm really not even sure why they're here but they're trying to find the guy with the diamonds in the face as if that's hard to find someone that has diamonds in their face and he's almost albino it just becomes more distinctive it's not really helping him No, it's back to London where he's going to get some assist from Madonna. If I thought the song wasn't bad enough, her acting's even worse. You'd think after Shanghai Surprise, she would have learned to act along the road. Nah. You'd think being married to a director, he might have, you know, directed her. Nah. Sean Penn is one of the strongest actors working at the time, and still, to a lot of people's opinion, you'd think he could give her some tips. That's what I thought you might say next, because Sean Penn is Sean Penn, you know? (laughs) He gave her some tips, and I didn't want to go there. Um, (laughs) Nicely done, sir. 
you know, Madonna. First, before Madonna, we get The Clash, which I don't think I've ever heard an already established pop song since, what, The Beach Boys? And But we were corrected that that was a bad cover of The Beach Boys, not really The Beach Boys. This is The Clash. I don't think we need to know that they're going to London by playing London Calling. I think British Airways product placement with the plane and him flying right in front of the building proves that they're in London. Madonna being there might also be. Yeah, because, you know, London, Brooklyn, all the same. <laughs> Madonna's being in this movie has caused a lot of talking points. Is she the oldest Bond girl? You guys are keep calling her a Bond girl. She's a woman in a Bond movie. I don't think she's a Bond girl. Well, the story I heard on this was that Madonna insisted as part of her contract for writing the song that she be in the movie and sleep with Bond, that she wanted to be a Bond girl. And it was Pierce who was like, oh, hell no. Good for him. I already love him for Remington Steele, love him more for Bond. Now he is just permanently in my cool book. The hearsay is that Madonna insisted that she be written as a lesbian since Pierce wouldn't kiss her on screen. And the line that's supposed to give it away to the audience is when she compliments Miranda Frost's looks. Right. Her one important essential part to the plot is that she's the one that tells us Miranda Frost lost the gold medal in the Olympics to someone who OD'd on steroids. We're going to find out that that actually was a murder committed by Moon back when he was an Asian man. But now he's her white fencing partner. Why does gene therapy change his accent? He had a very Americanized accent as it was when he was a Korean, right? I didn't really see a trace of an accent at all because he went to study at Oxford, etc., etc. So he could be affecting an accent. Was he hanging around Madonna too much then <laughs> that he affected a British accent? I never got bothered by Toby Stevens's accent. He brought it up twice and I'm thinking, yeah, I guess he's right. But I'm thinking he's just doing it himself because he's been around people enough to do it so he can complete the character. But when he's confronting his father, he still has the accent? You know, like in Hunt for October, when they all of a sudden start speaking English and we all accept it? It's kind of the same thing at that point. You're just going to go with it at that point. I'll go with it because they do explain that he went to Oxford. And I kind of like what Toby Stevens is doing. I don't know who this actor is, but there is something about the way that he's doing this performance that reminds me of Will Yun Lee, the actor from the first movie. I don't know why. They're both the kind of the same height and they have the same kind of sneer on their face all the time. I kind of buy it. I don't think there's a reason for us not to buy it. They explain the gene therapy and how it works, and then we see Zhao get half-transformed. So the only problem I have with it, Stuart, is that we pretty much see him die. We don't actually see him physically die, but if you fall off a waterfall like that, unless you're Jaws in Moonraker, you're going to die. Another day? Yes, apparently, which is where they get the title from, because they couldn't name this thing. This thing was Bond 20 all through production. And I just have a problem with how do you survive that, but if you're going to go into gene therapy, the whole thing, I buy that completely. It's big, it's crazy, it's Moonraker, but I kind of like it. I like this fencing battle. Oh, I love the fencing. That scene is where I've decided that at this moment, it's my favorite Bond film to date. I just love the excitement and the brutality of the sword fight. It is just fun. Wow. Rock, did you hear what I think he just said? I'm kind of hoping he didn't just say that, but <laughs> I, I did hear it. Rock is ignoring you. He's humming the theme song. It's not a bad thing or a good thing in my mind that he says that. I think people have to like the Bond movies they like, and we're here discussing why we like and dislike things. But as a Bond fan, this is not my favorite James Bond movie. You know what I mean? Like, this is not what I want in a James Bond movie. And so if Arnie likes this movie because I think he's proven for 19 episodes of now playing or more because we've done the unofficial James Bond movies, that some of this James Bond stuff isn't his cup of tea, Stuart. So to have him say this here, it's not a horrible thing to me. He's had his points throughout. Let's face it, earlier 
earlier on, you both said, this is trying to tell people that James Bond isn't an old fuddy-duddy. And I'm tired of James Bond, the old fuddy-duddy. I want a James Bond that can kick some ass with a sword, and here he is. And in fact, even the music, I'm getting a bit of a Pirates of the Caribbean flashback here. The movie wasn't out yet, but the score goes big, the sword fight goes big. This is my favorite Bond battle right here in the, with the swords. It's a good battle. I won't go bigger than that, but I enjoyed it. It reestablishes the new villain. I think I knew at the time that it was the same guy. I'm not sure when I knew. That's one thing I can't recollect. Having seen this movie before, I don't know when I guessed the Switchamaroo surprise, but it was pretty early. It was before the movie told me. Coming back to it, I remembered it instantaneously. So all I can say is I'm enjoying Gustav in the way that they're introducing him. He's kind of reminding me of Richard Branson. I thought that's what they were going for, much like Rupert Murdoch a couple ago. As far as the twist, I didn't figure that out until he said, I was this close to him and he didn't recognize me. See, I think unlike last time where they didn't want you to figure out Sophie Marceau was the villain, but, you know, a lot of us did. I think here, they're not worried or not if you could figure it out before they tell you. They give you plenty of clues for you to figure it out. I think they do want you to figure it out. I don't think the plot hinges on it like it did last time. I do remember the first time I watched the movie, I had figured it out before they told me. But much like you, Stuart, I think it's just part of the plot now, and who cares? I go along with it so well because I believe the actor playing Gustav and all that stuff. I completely buy into this guy, and credit goes to both actors and the movie, believe it or not, for selling me on this idea that gene therapy thing could work. It's like a face-off premise. You either buy it or you don't, and I buy it. They have a long hold on his face when he says, have we met before? And he's smiling and he's looking at Bond, seeing if Bond can recognize him. And he doesn't. And that's what should tell you, hey, this is that guy. But this setup, I've got to say, as someone that read the novel Moonraker over at Books and Nachos, this is the way that they played Hugo Drax, identically. They've totally lifted old plots and recycled them here. Yes, Hugo Drax was someone that made their fortune very, very quickly, impressed everyone, but ended up not being the British gentleman that he pretended to be. And that's the plot they're playing here with a little added sci-fi, I changed my race twist to it. You guys love a sword fight and talk about fencing, fencing, fencing. I'm no fencing expert, but they're not really doing fencing, fencing. They're doing like an old-fashioned big movie sword fight. It's very exciting. I give props to the actors also for not telegraphing all the blocks. It's very hard to do that in a well-rehearsed sword fighting scene, not to telegraph the parries and stuff. So good for them. They really do sell it. I think the movie dwells on it a little too long. I think it doesn't stop the movie cold, but it comes close to it for me, especially on repeat viewings. Get on with it. I want to give some serious props right now to Lee Tamahori. Now, I had to look him up. It's not a name that's on the tip of my tongue, but I have seen Next. I have seen Triple X, State of the Union. It's about damn time they bring in a director who has a vision for a way to do action scenes. And this guy has it. This guy doesn't have a huge list of films to his name, but he's got several mini action films to it. And I think he is shooting scenes in a fresh way that is making them feel contemporary. And this action is well filmed, well edited, well fought. You already credited the stars in the scene, but I want to credit all the technicians that make this a kinetic, fun battle. It did not get old. It could have gone on another 10 minutes. I was on a roller coaster and I didn't want to get off. You're talking about this one scene, right? You're not talking about the whole movie. You're talking about this one scene. I'm talking about this one scene as the high point in a great movie of action. 
Lee Tamahori didn't start out there, though. He actually came from New Zealand. A lot of the movies that he made were dramas up into this point. I think it's telling that they didn't ask him to do another Bond movie, but they did ask him to do the XXX sequel. I think that you're on to something there. He became a director of high-octane action after doing Die Another Day and hasn't gone back to the dramas. I do like the staging in this scene. The choreography is not all him. Obviously, a fight coordinator did that, right? The technical savvy of a James Bond movie is here, of course. But I can't agree with you for the rest of the movie. A lot of these action scenes seem lifted from other movies. Maybe we talked about this in Nemesis, Star Trek Nemesis, how they threw in modern ways of making movies. Here they do that whole camera panning thing they did in the Matrix and the Gap commercial, and they had the slow-mo going on here. They don't need those things in a James Bond movie. But I like that they put them in. And James Bond has always put in things that were topical. I mean, that is in his tradition, even if he hasn't done these things. Right. And sometimes when you do these things here and there, it works. And if you use it for a good purpose, it works. But here, I don't think they always use them for a good purpose. I think it's trying to elicit a response to me that the actual scenes are not giving me. I don't have a problem with different and modern stuff. That's fine. And I don't need to be a James Bond loyalist. It has to be a certain way because it's James Bond. No, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he used it inappropriately. I don't think I need that slow-mo stuff in this movie. Oh, I think it enhances it. I think it just makes everything a little more exciting. This is the most beautifully shot James Bond film we've seen. The cinematographer on this, the DP, just really knew how to frame, how to use the depth of field to maximum effect, the lighting. This is a pretty James Bond film to look at. It's a digital James Bond film, and the cinematographer you're speaking of shot all the Star Wars prequels. So he likes pristine images. I know you do too, Arnie, so that's what you're saluting here. I'm not going to agree with you. This is not the best-looking Bond movie. I think this is really the turning point at this moment. After this sword fight happens, this is where the movie schisms. And it is like, where do we go from here? Bond makes up with M. He patches it all up. They have this fun gadget warehouse scene where we see all of this old stuff, and it really does feel like... I'm a middle-aged man trying to get the teenage girl. I need to get the facelift. I need to get the new car. I need to change my look so that I can get the new kids. And this second half of the movie is where they tenaciously go after a plot that is way crazier than what they started. Yeah, and I think that you hit the nail on the head there. This scene in the underground with all the old Q gadgets, which is there's supposed to be something in it from every previous official James Bond movie in this movie, whether it's the Union Jack parachute from The Spy Who Loved Me to this cool stuff we see in the back when Rosa Klebb's actual shoe is there. Why they have Rosa Klebb's shoe in Q's lab, I don't know. Because it's awesome, we all love to see it. But what they were trying to do is point out this is 20th adventure. They say the thing with the watch and they're trying to make it cool for us fans and how great it is for all these homages. But what they actually do is they point out to a lot of the younger people, gosh, there's a lot of old shit here. You know, <laughs> it's like they really point out the age and Brosnan has gray Reed Richards temples. And compared to Rosamund Pike in the second half of the movie, he's starting to look a little old. It's really kind of fun with this kinetic movie they're going to have in the second half with the direction stuff, the director's choices are going with the CGI choices they're going with with the actors they've hired bond looks older and that's exactly what they're trying to not do and yet it's working for me in a great way maybe again because of my affection for pierce brosnan as an actor from earlier bond films and other works but i am just going with him never once did i harken back to the roger moore too old type of vibe on this one i did get a kind of greatest hits in the q lab I smiled broadly at the jetpack, that stupid, stupid jetpack. I also thought it was a stupid, stupid car at first until I remembered that cloak, so I was going with it. What's with this holodeck thing? 
Well, what's really cool about it is, to me, is they're doing all these callbacks to James Bond, and here they're doing a callback to GoldenEye the video game. And what a great idea, because James Bond, for this generation they're trying to get, have all played the GoldenEye video game. I thought that was a brilliant idea. Actually, I think that worked really, really well. How they use it later with Money Penny, eh, I'll take it or leave it. But in the middle of the scene with the virtual gun, I thought it works great. Thanks for explaining that. I had no idea why that was in the movie, but it totally makes sense now. And as someone that failed miserably trying to play that game, I don't want to be reminded of it, but it makes sense why they'd want to tell the kids that the movie can be just like that game. Now, I've got to say, I have been to Iceland. It is not made of ice. <laughs> Greenland is the one with ice. Iceland is the one that is green. Now, it does have some tundra. It does have a lot of different terrain. It's a beautiful country, but it does not look like this. The second unit actually filmed in Iceland on this. Everything we're seeing with the hotel and all that jazz, that's a set, obviously. But they actually went to Iceland, Stuart, so they actually filmed there. And so there's somewhere there's ice in Iceland. No, no, there is. But the impression that this movie would give someone that doesn't know about Iceland is that it is a snowy region completely covered in icebergs and with a name like Iceland. It was named that by the Vikings to throw people off the trail so that no one would ever go and see how lush and green and beautiful it actually is. As far as his base goes, I think this is the coolest Bond villain base of the modern era. They've kind of shied away from the old Dr. No evil mastermind bases, but this one's just gorgeous. It kind of looks like the Sydney Opera House. It is gorgeous, Arnie. It's absolutely gorgeous. But you know how I said earlier that I can go along with gene therapy changing people? That's no problem for me in this movie. And it looks like plastic, but it's supposed to be ice. It's an ice palace. Now, maybe I misunderstood on taking it too literally, but they have electronic doors. Now, they told us it's made of ice, and the whole thing melts later in the movie. How is this possible? I've got to say, when I first saw this movie, I shortly went on vacation with someone that argued with me passionately that this was a real place. And I was like, you have got to be kidding me. It does not exist. Well, we were both kind of right, and we were both kind of wrong. It was trendy in this first part of the decade to have these structures people would pay to go stay in ice hotels. That does happen. People actually adventure travel, and they do construct hotels that melt by the end of the season. So they're not totally off base. Like a lot of this movie, Invisible Cars, there is a tenuous connection to reality here. That is possible, but they've elaborated in lots of ways. As you pointed out, sliding doors, all of the things that they have here, electronics, would not exist in such a structure. It is a fantastical idea of a idea that was trendy at the time. I do remember the articles on ice hotels back then. You're right, I do remember that now. But they also have a greenhouse in a hot springs coming out of a glacier. And I don't understand how that's possible either. So the setting here is, while it looks beautiful, is a head-scratcher. And if I'm thinking about those kind of things instead of anything else in the movie that tells you something, I'm getting pulled out of this left and right with the director's choices and the cool like camera move stuff and this kind of stuff. It's pulling me out. Now, are you upset because Bond isn't really doing that much and they're giving it to Jinx? No, I don't care about that. I honestly don't. And you guys pointing it out, and that's great, and that's important to point out. But for me, Bond has plenty here. Let me clarify my stance, because I said at the beginning of this podcast, my memory is that this happened and they were setting up the Jinx show. But now you're saying, you guys, no, Stuart is saying this. I disagree. I think it doesn't become the Jinx show. It is not a replay of what we saw with Michelle Yao. Here, I was surprised how little Jinx is given to do and how she really kind of falls into the same kind of Bond girl role we've seen time and time again. She becomes a damsel in distress that Bond has to save. 
She eventually gets in a chick fight, which we have seen happen a couple times before, too. But I was surprised that the focus stayed on Bond. I don't think Jinx stole the show. I think that she's always ahead of Bond. I mean, she was ahead of him in Cuba. She's ahead of him here. She's the first one into the dome. The fact that she gets captured and Bond has to save her is just really more of a callback to Goldfinger with the lasers. And they're now saying she's the equivalent of Connery. Oh, I just think they're calling back lasers because they want to call back lasers because of the 20th anniversary. I do think that the Jinx angle that they were going for here didn't completely work. And maybe because it is Brosnan's movie. It's a James Bond movie. I don't know if Jinx is a strong enough character. Honestly, frankly, I don't think they need to bring her back in the second half of the movie. She was the first Bond girl. By the official rules, she should be killed. I mean, she sleeps with Bond. She should go down. I would have been fine with it. I could have definitely seen that happen. But I think that because they're trying to set her up, I like that in the early scenes, she is a female Bond. She's libidinous, she's intelligent, she's investigative, she's out for herself. So I like that they play with the formula in this way. I don't feel she steals the show, but if they made a Jinx movie, I would watch it. I would too. It's a James Bond connection. I definitely would watch that. But I think the first scene, you're right. I think the Cuba scene, you're absolutely right. It's just that they don't do enough with her to justify bringing her back. I like the cast Halle Berry in it, but if Jinx did not come back in the second half of the movie, they wouldn't have gotten Halle Berry. The character itself in the second half of the movie is not as cool as she was in the first half. I agree she's not as cool because she does become too much of a damsel in distress and a little bit of a weight on James. James could have just left the whole place and gone back to MI6 and come back with an army like he used to do when he was Sean Connery. George Lazenby, actually, Arnie, too, did that. Well, once. but <laughs> Once, but he did it. But I don't mind her coming back. I enjoy the presence she brings, perhaps because it's Hallie. I don't think she's bad in this. I think she is just a lighthearted presence on screen. I think that she and Brosnan don't have sexual chemistry, but they have good on-screen action chemistry together, and this film is at its best when they're both together. I think it's a good segue now to go into the other woman in the movie, Rosamund Pike. And I think this woman is gorgeous. Oh, my God. I think she's gorgeous. And she's pretty young, too. I think she's like 23 when she got cast in this. Did you guys like the twist that she's the one who sold Brosnan out and she's the one who's behind the scenes thing the whole time? Did you like what they did with Miranda Frost? I really want to know what you guys think about this. I didn't catch that she was the MI6 agent. I really just didn't put that together. But as soon as I found out she was, I knew she was the leak because it's the only thing that made any damn sense. As for if I liked it, I'm ambivalent. I was with it. It didn't outrage me, nor did I go, oh, you got me. It was what it was. I think that MI6 has some real problems if they can't make connections with people that they hire to do spy work, cavorting with terrorists. We find out that she went to school at the same time that Moon did at Oxford, and nobody thinks it's strange when she wants to go work for him. That should be a tell-all there. That's on MI6, quite frankly, here. They don't know he's Moon. They think he's Gustav Graves. Yeah, I keep forgetting that. They're the only ones. Again, bad spy work, MI6. Bad, bad spy work. But here's the thing. I knew that she had to be bad because she won't sleep with Bond. There's something about the fact that they make her asexual that I think is a way of telling the audience, you shouldn't like this frigid woman. They go to Iceland and he's like, you should feel really comfortable here in this palace of ice. He's really knocking her for keeping him at bay. And it doesn't feel like the usual banter of the second girl who's like, I'm holding you off. 
off, but I will eventually be won over. I don't get the sense that they're ever going to connect. When she says never, I believe it. I didn't like her. I guess that's what it led me to believe. I felt like I wasn't supposed to like her, and I really didn't. I think it works okay. I don't think it works great. That line you quoted, Stuart, I thought he was making a stupid joke about her last name. That's how I thought the script was written, so why wouldn't I think that? But I don't like that James Bond doesn't know his gun is loaded. I don't know how James Bond wouldn't check his clip or bring a second clip with him (laughs) to the gun that he's bringing to get the bad guy. That whole thing seems a little out of character for me. Like I said, I didn't feel like I was supposed to like her, so the fact that she betrays Bond is, it's okay. I was okay with knowing that she was going to get killed, which is what it tells us when we know that she's the villain. I don't mind she betrays him, Stuart. The way she did it is kind of hackneyed. I think it's weird that James Bond could fall for that. He's off his game. I'm telling you, he's 40 years old now. He just doesn't investigate the same way he does. And I don't know, Brosnan, are you guys still big supporters of him? I feel like I want to like him and that GoldenEye showed me that I could. But these new movies, I just feel like this is the reason why I didn't like Brosnan when I first experienced him. Having seen Tomorrow Never Dies and Die Another Day, I just don't feel him clicking with the material. I think the material is letting him down. I think the first half of this movie proves that he can do this very well. I think a lot of action scenes in the past four movies proves he has it down. I think this problem is, again, the script in the second half of this movie is just not there, and he's stuck with it. I think he's the best Bond that we've seen so far. You're holding to that. I'm holding to that. I think his films are the most consistent. I'm going to take Lazenby, who had one film, so that's real consistent, and even Dalton, who had two. I'm going to take them out of the run and just compare those who had three or more films. But when you take Connery, Brosnan, and more, Brosnan wins for me as the most consistent performance. I think the script let him down last time. I think in this one, he's top of his game. As much as I loved him in GoldenEye, I'm loving him here. And that would make him my favorite Bond so far. The only one who could unseat him is Craig. I also love him as James Bond, Stuart. I really do. If he's my favorite James Bond, again, I think I like all the actors to play James Bond for different reasons. But I go now back to Goldeneye more than any other James Bond movie. And a big reason is Pierce Brosnan's portrayal of James Bond. And here again, he's doing a strong portrayal of James Bond and taking the character where we've never seen him before. But again, I have to say, it's not his fault that these movies don't work. He's come to play. So are you okay with him surfing on a tidal wave and outrunning a laser? I mean, the stuff he does here would make Roger Moore blush. Well, that's when I refer to Spider Bond, because he didn't look at all real or human. Yeah, and again, it's the script. He's not speaking or acting in these things. He's running away from a laser, or he's hanging off a model on a set, or a CGI Bond. The CGI here, James Bond does stunts. And we have some stunts here, but not many. Halle Berry jumping backwards off that cliff. Why couldn't they get someone to do some of that? Hey, shove her off the cliff. I'm cool with it. (laughs) (laughs) But it also looks bad on top of it. The whole thing with the laser, it looks bad. So if it didn't look as bad, maybe I wouldn't mind as much. But it seems to me that James Bond needs to do these things for real. If they have someone surfing in the beginning of the movie for real, why couldn't they have someone surf here with the parachute? I think I'm with you, Brock. I mean, when I think about it, I think that's the disconnect. We've seen Bond do all kinds of crazy things. But when I think about Moonraker, I think about that great opening with them falling out of the airplane with no shoot. And that stuff had such a tactile feel, no matter how crazy the movie got. Some of those battles felt real. Not all of them, but some of those 
those battles felt really, really real. And here, a lot of the action, it's cool, it's exciting, it's big, but I just don't feel connected in the same way. I'm not connected to Bond the way I'd like to be. He is starting to feel like Triple X. From here on out, it's pretty much nonstop action, right? There's really little plot left, and it's just one action scene after another, and it keeps barreling and barreling and barreling. And if you like the CGI effects of the glacier and the laser and the airplane, then you might have a really great time for the last 25, 30 minutes of this movie. I think I liked it better the first time, back in 2002 in the movie theater. I was kind of smiling. I wasn't expecting anything. Here... Yeah, some of the things that I kind of wrote along with and shrugged and said, hey, it's a Bond movie. Now I'm kind of like, well, I don't know about that one. I think where it really becomes problematic is when we get to Pyongyang. Gustav not only has a satellite in space made out of diamonds that he can use to channel the sun's energy that he's allowed to put up there because he's told them it will help Earth as if global warming was something that we needed to encourage. And then it's Asians wrong here. I mean, all of a sudden he's wearing a samurai suit and talking about the rising sun and how Korea is going to take over everything. I mean, that's the Japanese. What are they even talking about at this point when he's reuniting with his father and trying to explain why he wants to be the white guy controlling the sun? I think it's about world domination. He's a Bond villain. I kind of liked it. I did find it funny that it's the second Bond movie to make me think of real genius because he has a satellite laser in space that he can target so precisely. The reason they have the laser is to destroy the mines, right? The million mines in the DMZ. So then North Korea can march down to South Korea and go to town. But they also talk about focusing it on like Japan and North America. They can focus it anywhere. The weird part is they really shoebox themselves into something. They started at a real cool hot button place with North Korea, but North Korea can't even fire a nuclear missile very well right now. So it's just not plausible to think they built a diamond encrusted satellite. Plus, there was no Donald Duck on the satellite. I mean, if North Korea is doing it, there's going to be some Donald Duck while Kim Jong-il's in charge. So he's on this big plane and he confronts his father and he kills his father. And all this stuff, it's the last bit of plot we have. And we have this big action scene on this plane that's falling apart. Oh, what a great scene, isn't it? They fly the plane into the laser. I'm like, how does the plane not blow up? But I love that it comes out singed and its pieces are flying off. I don't like the CGI in this, Arnie. It pulls me right out. So I understand what they're telling me was going on, but I have nothing invested because I don't like the CGI. It's horrible. I'm an effects snob, and I did not notice. The only bad effects I noticed are when he was riding the glacier. And, of course, the bad Sith lightning every time Gustav Moon would touch somebody. See, I didn't mind that part. I minded that the pieces of the plane falling apart looked pretty shoddy to me, and I don't believe the plane's going down, and I don't care. And that's the problem, is if I don't care and I don't believe it's happening, obviously other James Bond movies, they don't actually have a plane crashing, but I believe it for some reason. I believe there's a volcano base blowing up. I don't believe they're on a plane this entire time because they're taking me right out of it. I'm loving, Arnie, that you're getting into it and you can enjoy it for what they're telling you is going on. I'm not buying it in the least bit. And meanwhile, we haven't talked about him, but we have Mr. Blonde smoking a cigarette and waiting to die. Love seeing Michael Madsen in anything. Yeah, kind of a strange character here. He's the male American equivalent to M. And he's Halle Berry's boss, essentially. He doesn't really feature him well. I imagine they thought in the spinoff he would get more to do. 
Yeah, I think he's here just to set himself up. And I understand he's worked with the director and he knows Pierce Brosnan as socially. And he took the role for a variety of reasons, none of which are it's a great role. I just don't think he's used well. I love this guy. And it's like he's in free willy mode here, you know? <laughs> I've seen Madsen in a lot of thankless roles. Much like Hallie, his career had some downward turns too. So I just thought this might have been a job, a paycheck, a mortgage payment. No, it's a setup. It's what it is. Ah. Were they going to take the AVP guy with them too? Because that guy was in like the past few James Bond movies. The tall African-American guy? Yes. Actually, what's kind of cool is they were talking about him being in consideration for the role of Bond after Brosnan. And he actually does it at auditions. That's how they got the idea that he read with Rosamund Pike. And if not for the last few two, he's the guy doing the readings and they love him. And they're also talking about the guy we talked about this previously from Predators and Thor, Idris Elba, can take over. So they actually might go there with him or Idris. One of them may actually be Bond after Craig is done, which would be awesome, I think, because in that scene with the virtual reality, I completely buy him in this role. So when the movie ends, I'm like, well, they killed Miranda. Is he going to end up with the first Bond girl? I've never seen that. Oh, shit. He's ending up with Money Penny. I really thought they were going there, folks. They fooled the hell out of me. I'm like, this is a different James Bond. We've seen him face death. Maybe he's really ready to settle down and have a real, oh, it's the holodeck. Yeah, they got me. I quite honestly had forgotten about the holodeck. I'm still struggling with that holodeck, but okay, <laughs> whatever. It's the one thing I couldn't go with. I could go with invisible cars. I could go with glass shattering rings, but the holodeck was the one thing, especially a holodeck that Money Penny could feel below the waist. I'm not seeing it, but unfortunately, the girl Bond ends up with, yes, it's Jinx, but unfortunately for Halle Berry, Bond says, I'm not sure how good you are. And she goes, I'm so good. And that just reminds me of like the closing monologue from Catwoman. When I'm bad, I'm just as bad as I want to be. Yeah, that's exactly right. She's not going into the next Bond adventure. She's going to Catwoman after this. Good luck. So Stuart, Arnie, do you recommend Die Another Day? Stuart. A tough one. I don't even know myself. Honestly, I've had to make recommends or not recommends for a lot of these bonds. And the more that I do them, the more that I realize that if I weren't on the show, I'd probably just shrug to someone that said, was it any good? And go, eh, it was a bond. It has a collection of attributes that are ridiculous and fun and annoying. And a lot of these things just kind of hover on the fence here. This one hovers on the fence in the same way that A View to a Kill or Dr. No. It is goofy. It is big. I don't think Brosnan does the comedy thing very well. And I think that's ultimately what's going to keep me from not recommending it is that Brosnan can't sell me on the movie that they're trying to make. But there is more fun here than its bad rep would lead you to believe. I am willing to go with absurdity. And you know what? I'd say if you did enjoy A View to a Kill, if you did like the Roger Moore era, give this one a shot. It is not all bad. There are things about it I like. But ultimately, no, I'm going to have to say it's just a strange marriage of Bond and adventure. Mild not recommend. Arnie. In this Bond series, I've had to really ask myself a question. Is it that I don't like action films? I mean, I'm being told on the forums, on Facebook, on Twitter, by email, in person, by you guys, this is great action. And I'm just sitting here going, where? Is it that I don't like action films? I love Lethal Weapon, love Robocop, love Die Hard, but are these other things? Lethal Weapon, Die Hard... Are we looking at comedy, Robocop, sci-fi? Do I just not like straight-up action? I like Commando. I really had to face that about myself. 
This movie alleviated all my fears. It's an action movie, and I love it. Out of 19 official James Bond films we've watched, this is the one that after I watched it, I went to Amazon and placed an order, not for the entire box set, but just for this. Because I'm going to watch this again. Because it's a lot of fun, and it's a lot of action. And I hate that opening song, but I love the score, the way it's used in the movie. I love Brosnan's performance. I love Halley's performance. I like the -the over-the-top villains. I like their plot. This is a strong, strong, strong recommend. I love it. Strong rock recommend for me. I just don't like this movie. This is Brosnan's Moonraker. The first half of this movie, I love, love, love almost everything about it. The second half of this movie goes to Crazy Town. And I have no problem with Crazy Town if it's used well and done well. It's not done well here, folks. We've talked about this in the series before. There's a limit to what I can take as a James Bond fan for the Crazy Town, and they went over for me. Because, also, the script fails the movie. And, unfortunately, it just doesn't hold itself up to the first half of this movie, which was so awesomely dark and different and exciting to watch. And I don't understand how it's two completely different movies, and it's just like Moonraker. We keep talking about how Moonraker got a bad rep, bad rep, bad rep, because everyone remembers the end and how it goes to a laser gun fight in the middle of a James Bond movie. Here, it just feels nothing like a James Bond movie to me at the end, even with an invisible car, which I don't mind so much. I love the ring. I think the ring is cool. The gadgets I don't have a problem with here. It's just the end of this movie doesn't feel like a James Bond movie. It feels like another action movie, which is fine, but even that action movie is failing me and getting me invested in the characters and what's going on and the most important thing believability i understand james bond as a fantasy i understand all of those arguments that people make we're not coming here for james bond for realism but we are coming here for fun and it's based in realism so you can tell me an invisible car is based in reality but if i don't buy the way they use it I'm not going to go along with it. There's no way you can tell me an invisible car becomes a stealth car. There's no way you can tell me an invisible car that does show us on the screen that it leaves tire tracks in snow, that the only way they know the car is there is because the snowmobile flies into the coat of the car and he flies over. and That's how Zhao knows Bond is there. There's no way you could not know a car is there. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so I'm having problems being invested in the movie when I'm constantly calling into question what's going on on the screen. And in James Bond movies, the best ones are when you don't call into question what's going on the screen because they pull you along for the adventure and the fun of what's going on. It's a solid not recommend because the second half of the movie fails me. But kudos to the producers for throwing all the homages in for me. Loved that stuff. Thank you for the love letter to us fans. But next time, you know, make a better movie. And I think that Bond fans should give this one a reevaluation. I think in the light of the Craig films, this one might not be the blasphemy it seemed at the time. And yeah, it's got those little love letter things in there for the Bond fans. I think you're towing too hard a line. But Arnie, you're not the Bond fan. I think this is a great Bond movie for people that don't like James Bond very much. (laughs) I'm in the middle Bond fan, and that's where I remain with this movie. But I do think it's a real litmus test to find out whether you are truly with Bond or wanting something other than what we normally get in a 007 movie. I think an invisible car can actually really work well in a movie. It could be a lot of fun, and you could actually have a lot of humor with it. The way they use it here is disappointing. Seriously, they really missed the ball on that. I know a lot of people hit on that invisible car as being way over the top, and it's because of the way they use it, in my opinion, is why. I think if they use it a different way, it could be a lot more fun. I think Roger Moore would have had a lot of fun with an invisible car. Look at Tomorrow Never Dies and that great scene in the parking complex, how much fun they had with the car there, right? Remote control car? You can do a great scene with an invisible car. You really can, and they didn't do it here. That's because they want to sell cars. I do feel like this Bond was always showing off the watch in cars because, let's face it, that was part of the promotion of this movie. 
I laughed out loud, Stuart, when he shaves his 18-month-old Korean prison beard with that little Norelco <laughs> electrical razor. Because he gets a look in the mirror like, hey, smooth shave. <laughs> Total product placement. Now, are you guys going to cry? It is the last Brosnan. We are saying goodbye. I've already kind of gone on record as saying not one of my favorites, so I'm not really upset. But are you guys upset that he's not going to be back for more adventures? After this one, I would have loved to see him do another one. I'd love to see where they could have taken it. And I understand they wanted him back, and there got to be, like, some negotiations. I was following it pretty closely, because I liked him, again, as an actor coming into it, and I didn't want to see them change away from him. And I think it got down to money, and they decided to replace him with James Blonde. I think a lot of things happened, as we talked about earlier in the podcast with Jason Bourne. I think reboots were coming back, and regardless of all of that, I do think that Brosnan could have had a fifth movie. I'm not going to say I wanted him in Casino Royale, the next movie, but I think they could have done another Pierce Brosnan movie, and I wouldn't have minded. I think a fifth one for him would have probably been enough. But we're going to go into a whole new era with James Bond in our next podcast, and we all know where that's going. And so would you be willing to trade another Pierce Brosnan movie for Casino Royale? Well, we'll talk about that in our next podcast. How about a Jinx movie? Anybody else want a Jinx movie? I would have been good for that. At the time, I would have said yes. Honestly, even after not recommending the movie, I would have been up to watching a Jinx movie. I think it could have been a lot of fun. That was all another trend Bond was jumping on. Early 2000s, every female star wanted to have their action vehicle. Most of them flamed out. Angelina Jolie's Tomb Raider flamed out. Alias got canceled. Catwoman, there was too many dimension. But it was Bond trying to keep up with the trends. And no, this one, it missed its mark. If they were going to make Jinx, they needed to make it the next year. And honestly, I don't think it would have been much better than Elektra was to Daredevil. It's funny you mention Electra because Colonel Moon, not the white guy, but the Asian guy, was Karigi. Oh, I love Karigi. He was the one with the coin that couldn't do anything. Yes. I loved him. (laughs) (laughs) So quickly, as far as Brosnan goes, I really feel like the only one that I'd really return to is Goldeneye. Die Another Day, I wouldn't reject watching again. And World is Not Enough, I'm curious about it because there was so much that I did like about it. The fact that I didn't go with it really had a lot more to do with plot confusions and sort of just a lack of energy. It felt like a low boil. So I'd give that one another shot. The only one I'd definitely say, no dice, no go, tomorrow never dies. Just hated that one. One of the worst. I'm going to flip number two and three. I will watch Die Another Day again. I probably will watch Goldeneye again. These are two of my favorite Bonds of all time. Tomorrow Never Dies, probably never watch again, but I wouldn't mind if it was on. And you just couldn't get me to watch The World Is Not Enough. Never, ever again. And I'm going Goldeneye number one. I have watched it millions of times. I love that movie. The World Is Not Enough is number two for me. I much enjoyed it more than you two. Die Another Day comes in third because that first half... I pretty much will turn it off after the first half. And Tomorrow Never Dies is my bottom of the barrel. It's one of my least favorite James Bond films of all time. So Brosnan, again, love him as James Bond, but unfortunately his movies are not the ones that people always will think about when they think about James Bond. I don't have any nostalgia connected to him. I also think that works against him. You know, I was a child impressionable when I saw Connery, when I saw Moore, even when I saw Dalton. At this point in age, he doesn't mean anything to me. So he really doesn't mean much more now. I don't know if it's because of Bond, but one of the TV stations, I don't even know which one, has started rerunning Remington Steel, and just because we went back to Brosnan with this Bond era, I'm re-watching Remington Steel. It holds up. And you can go to Venganza Gazette and read Arnie's reviews of every single Remington Steel episode 
Go there now. It's right after all the Hulk episode reviews. Yes. Which are coming. They will come. <laughs> They're just a little delayed. Sure they will. And if you want more Bond, go to Books and Nachos. This week, You Only Live Twice, the last novel in the Blofeld trilogy. Stuart and I are reviewing all the original Ian Fleming, James Bond works over there at Books and Nachos as a companion piece to this movie retrospective. I look forward to hearing that, and I look forward to this Friday the most, Casino Royale, one that I have not seen since theatrical release and have been dying to return to as we head into Skyfall and into the Craig era. So join us next time. Now playing will return with Casino Royale. That sounds like a dismissal. I was rather looking forward to breakfast. Thank you for listening to this episode of the now-playing James Bond Retrospective Series. Job's done. The bitch is dead. At our website, nowplayingpodcast.com, you can find the other episodes in the James Bond series, as well as other series such as The Avengers, Batman, Spider-Man, Predator, Rocky, Rambo, and many more. I thought Christmas only comes once a year. You will also find individual movie reviews such as Green Lantern, Cowboys and Aliens, Avatar, and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. Talk here, listen here. So that's what I've been doing wrong all these years. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this show with other listeners. Shame. We barely got to know each other. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where the hosts post new episode announcements and written movie reviews. Just do as I say, will you? Yes, Jams. The links to our social media pages can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I take it that this is not a social call, 007. Correct. You should have brought lilies. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. Em really doesn't mind you earning a little money on the side. She'd just prefer it if it wasn't selling secrets. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. So you put your money where your mouth is. You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy t-shirts, totes, boxers, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. Well, that's quite a nice little nothing you're almost wearing. I approve. Now Playing's James Bond Retrospective Series is edited by Alex, Ray, Phil, Dylan, Jason, Jeff, Brock, and Arnie. One rises to meet a challenge. Now Playing is not affiliated with MGM UA Entertainment Company, Columbia Pictures, or Warner Brothers Pictures, and no infringement is intended. That depends on your definition of safe sex. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. This never happened to the other fellow. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2012, all rights reserved. I assume you have no regrets. I don't. What about you? Of course not. That would be unprofessional. And they have always been jumping on trends. And they were both beaten up by Sean Penn. Yes. Wait, Bond was beaten up by Sean Penn? It was a funny non sequitur. Yeah, <laughs> oh. You laughed initially, so it worked. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I'm not sure it worked. Um. <laughs> I mean, if North Korea is doing it, there's going to be some Donald Duck while Kim Jong-il's in charge.
Or is it Daffy Duck? I can never remember which one he was obsessed with. Um, I don't know which one he's obsessed with, but his son had all the Walt Disney Pooh characters dancing at his inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> Did you see that video? It's priceless. Everyone was just like that. The news media was just great because they didn't know how to report it. Well, it seems like Pooh has made an appearance. I mean, can you imagine? It'd be like the White House. Like, you're now going to be president and like... Uh, uh, Big Bird. Yeah, Big Bird comes out. Well, he might be this year. <laughs> I love that you are doing that, taking your time with it, Arnie. I think it's awesome you're going to do it, because I started watching the Star Trek original series, and I had every intention of writing reviews for them and putting them on some website somewhere, and then after two of them, I'm like, you know what? I'm not enjoying these enough to actually sit down and take the time to do this. 